This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1244. Who can understand the wonder and the mysterio of it all? Our podcast title is, With Great Potter Comes Great Repotability. <laughs> I am Rob Jan. And me, Give a Q. Uh, so, during NADOC week... Uh, Zero-G would just like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we operate today, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, so there's actually a number of particular broadcasts devoted to NADOC on Triple R this week, so you can find out more about that at triplerr.org.au. Uh, that includes Neil Morris's Sunday afternoon show, Still Here, um, and that helped open Triple R's NADOC week with an excellent two-hour special episode. Uh, that was yesterday, so you can find that on Triple R's webpage on demand. So you can just look up yesterday's shows um, and check that one out. Thank you, Megan. No worries. Now, uh, it's my sad... Not a, a duty, not a duty at all, a, a commemoration, really... Um, Vale Stephen Walker, legendary, very long-term presenter of the Skull Cave on Triple R, and also the program manager for a huge chunk of time, who became literally a tentpole of our thriving little community at the station and the larger one beyond. You will have heard the many and far more knowledgeably detailed tributes to him rolling out on the airwaves since last Wednesday, and I particularly recommend the excellent tribute to him on the Triple R website with links to audio archives of his broadcasts. And I really have only this humble footnote to add, uh, along with everything else that he did for everyone else at the station. Zero-G thanks him for providing the launch pad for the show, which was then a segment of um, another show back in 1994. I don't recall back then looking the gift horse in the mouth Mm -hmm. and asking why he thought that was a good idea. Perhaps his phantom sense was tingling. It was so adept at picking out new people and things which he thought would add to the eclectic, eccentric, educationally exciting Triple R mixing bowl. Who can understand the wonder and the mystery of it all? Usually I'm speculating about the future, but in this case I'm tempted to take a punt on the past. I'd like to think that Stephen glimpsed into a future when the science fiction, fantasy and horror genres would grow as they demonstrably have to dominate cinema, television and literature in the late 20th century and earliest 21st pop culture. I speculate that he may have, with his famously vast knowledge of music and its myriad subcultures, already recognised that process in the works of David Bowie, Jefferson Airplane slash Starship, Hawkwind, Alan Parsons, Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, Kraftwerk, Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, Jeff Wayne and the Blue Oyster Cult. Just to name a few artists who adopted the tropes and increasingly the iconography of Zero G's preferred genres. I've I've no idea what uh, Stephen personally thought of those individual musicians, but I have every idea that he could see outside his own tastes 
and was exceptionally capable of spotting a trend and finding radio voices to explore it and, by extension, help the listeners find their own way into it, or not, as they chose. And judging by the many new voices he helped onto the air during his time as program manager, it's very evident that he thought it was important to give the listeners an informed choice. (laughs) Um, I'm not definitely not suggesting that Stephen Walker was in any way, shape or form responsible for Zero G's bewilderingly (laughs) bizarre musical programming, but in fact that would be doing him a a real disservice. But yeah, I am saying that he gave us the space and the time to develop it ourselves and that's really everything. That's what I think that Triple R is all about. He was here and he made a difference. Thank you, Mr Walker. Now, sincere condolences to Stephen's relatives, his close friends, his radio and other colleagues, and particular personal um, condolences to the station staff and volunteers who are suffering in terms of um, particular loss. Um, a vast extended, extended family of listeners and fans out there for him as well. As we comic book geeks know from the works of The Phantom creator Lee Fork, the tradition is that there will be others to take up the mantle. But for Triple R, Stephen was truly the original ghost who walked the talk. And I would have liked to have thought that um, it would have been a never-ending story, but as he's contributed so much to the ongoing and future staffing and and volunteer base of the station that um, he will be remembered as a, (laughs) let's say, a never-ending story. And I I bet he would have, I don't know, I have no idea what he would have thought of this particular song. (laughs) (laughs) But we're also playing it today, as is traditional on Zero G. Um, It's a 1980s song, one of the big ones in the era, and uh, we've got reason to talk about that later on when we do a bit of a review of the Stranger Things, which is um, the Netflix show that we want to talk about today, amongst other things. All right, so this is the um, uh, Giorgio Moroder soundtrack for the film The NeverEnding Story by Klaus Doldinger as well. And they've gotten this guy called um, Limal to feature on this soundtrack I, I could, wish I could show you the picture right here and now of him but he's got he's got the hair <laughs> for the 80s he is the, the, the total guy and it's the, um, the main title theme for the never ending story I'm Terry Pratchett the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels so you can believe me when I say that Zero G on 3 Triple R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 with three exclamation marks. Never ending song. Oh, <laughs> so nice. Yeah, it is actually. I remember that show that movie. I only remember the second one. Ah, okay. I don't really remember the first one, and I think it's because I'm pretty sure Jonathan Brandis was in the second one and I was very into him as a youngster. I can remember I think that's right. I can remember making luck dragons as um, sculpting luck dragons. All that white foofy Yeah, fur. such a good... Maybe I could be wrong. Klaus Adoldinger and Giorgio Moroder, of course, there. We've, <laughs> and also a guy called Limhal, <laughs> who's got the full hair. <laughs> 
going. All right, now, uh, we played that because um, it's 1980, or at least it is in The Stranger Things. Yes, 1984. 1984. Uh, I actually don't think enough they they referenced it, 1984. They had a title card at the start. Did they? Yeah. I remember, because I remember... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. But I was like, oh, it's nearly when I was born. So I'm in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Re- you don't remember much of the '80s. You can't. Oh no, not really. Not really. Not yeah. really. Okay. So, uh, well, I remember them. These that, that was a decade of. See, I remember it in geek terms. Mm. It was a decade of. Um, uh, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, oh. Aliens, a lot of sequels. <laughs> I mean, I remember it through that content now. Yeah. <laughs> Does that count? You know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. A lot of things happened in the 80s. Loads. Massively important in history. Uh, but and pretty much um, the Stranger Things riffs off some all. Every single trope that you can think from the 80s. Yeah, I think, and I think where in the first and second season they were like, yes, we're influenced, like the way Tarantino is influenced. Here they are name-checking things, they are music-checking things, they're using like... Yeah, they're very explicit with some of the stuff, which I actually thought was quite fun because I like knowing from a pop culture perspective what was hot at that time, what people were wearing, what people were drinking, what people were watching. So I didn't mind that. It's vital, in fact, if you actually go back in time and you need to be able to answer questions intelligently and fit in. <laughs> exactly. You've got to merge in with, like, society of the time. So, And because of the locations in this season of The Stranger Things, which a um, uh, shopping mall, a swimming pool... Uh, a fun fair. A fun fair. Um, and they say there's a, there's a trope. It's a fun fair where uh, the 4th of July celebrations are being staged. Mm. Now, that's an 80s cinematic trope in itself, yes. not just the force of, force, force of, the force of del- July, but the, um, the fact that it's the show, will, you know it's going to land on that day somewhere with, through the course of the story. Yeah, yeah. So I think it originally starts a couple of days before the 4th of July mm-hmm. and then we work through a couple of days and our story kind of um, picks up pace from there. I really, what I really liked is season one and two. I think some of the, not criticism, but some of the commentary around season two was that it really took the same formula as season one, maybe added a little on top, changed a few things, but it was very much a very similar story Hmm. and a very similar structure. And they didn't really introduce much new, whereas I think season three is a whole new thing. Is it in part due to the fact that it, it is um, some time has passed since the, the first two seasons and, you know, everyone's grown up a bit? It's true and there's a good opportunity there to explore some more teenage tropes and also I think I love what they do with exploring mall culture and using that as a background setting mm. for all of the action rather than the kind of Goonies-esque school setting. Well, they've lost their goonie. Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. It's much more this teen mall culture, and I think that was a really nice way to do it. Mm. Um, and I I also think they probably realise they can't run on the same no. formula for a third time because people would just be quite fatigued. So they had to give it an overhaul, which they did. Yeah, a large part of the action does take place in Starcourt Mall. Yes. Um, and again, that's another trope, you know, not only just for normal films of the 80s, yeah. but for genre films, you know. And you know that if you're going to have a mall in one of these sorts of genre shows, there's going to be a siege of it, there's going to be something like The Walking Dead. Well, and even in the first <laughs> scene, I think, um, 
you know, they're talking about Day of the Dead and so on. And so it's kind of like yeah. they, they know they're very explicit about what they're drawing um, inspiration from, I guess. Just to give you a, a quick update, if you're not really – well, you probably don't want to be listening if we're talking about Season 3 and you haven't seen Season 1 and 2. I mean, we're not going to try to spoil Season 3, but, yeah, I guess you would probably want to know a little about Stranger Things Season 1 and 2. <laughs> it's basically about a group of kids in the town of Hawkins mm-hmm. uh, in the United States in the 1980s and they have stumbled upon a rift to a parallel – Mirrorverse dimension, hellmouthish. Yes, hellmouthish. <laughs> the the upside down, which exists coincident with our own. Mm. In fact, many of the things in our own are replicated there, only sort of a lot more manky, foggier. Yeah, yeah, foggier. <laughs> um, and these the uh, young these kids, they're uh, they're, they're a typical eighties trope. There is nothing for no 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 evil, no chaos, no disaster that they cannot overcome with the help of these five magic items. <laughs> a flashlight, mm. a bicycle, oh, yeah. a walkie-talkie. <laughs> so much good radio stuff. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, a set of hand-drawn maps mm. <laughs> and very possibly a multi-sided Dungeons & Dragons Dice. Yes. Although the influence of the Dungeons and Dragons stuff is a lot less in this season. Yes. But they, um, do, they do touch upon it they do, quite they constantly, do. actually, uh, in subtle ways, because a lot of it's to do with quests and stuff. Mm, yes, exactly. And side quests and different parties. I think what I really liked about it is they've done so well in giving you the pairings and groupings that you want to see, that you like, mm. um, following those along, and then also... Um, merging the storylines back together in the perfect way at the right time. Um, I think I think that's done really well. The uh, Several of the main characters, and this is a very large ensemble cast. It's really. huge, yeah. Um, Winona Ryder plays Joyce Byers. She's um, uh, a mother of a boy called uh, Will yes. and um, uh, another one called Jonathan, actually, too. Yeah, so she's, uh, yeah. Mm. And she and... Um, Sheriff Hopper are the main adult influences in the mm. story, I would say. David Harbour plays Jim Hopper, the sheriff of the town. He's had a few problems in his life. Mm. Um, uh, daughter died of cancer. He's had um, he's been become an alcoholic. He's also a Vietnam veteran too, I think, in the storyline. Yeah, I think so. And he uh, has been developing feelings for Winona Ryder's character. Yes, um, and the. They're kind of amusingly mismatched, just the fact that she's like five foot um, two and he's six foot two. Yeah, but I think that's (laughs) such a lovely pairing. It's quite charming, actually. Um, Beyond that, there's a core group of uh, young kids um, who are sort of um, opening up into the world. Some of them have gone off to science camp. Mm. Um, Dustin, is it? Yes, Dustin. Dustin's gone off to science camp and come back, uh, not with a girlfriend in tow, but... At the end of his ham radio setup, yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's a bit of there's a bit of um, backwards and forwards about whether she actually exists or not, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Um, now, Will was one of the ones who was uh, dreadfully influenced by the Upside Down, yes, uh, taken over by what they called the Mind Flayer, yeah, from the first season, and it um, it's kind of like a giant sort of shadowy Cthulhu tentacle yeah. sort of monster. So they've sort of upped it. That was sort of the second season yeah. big bad. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, here it sort of takes on a very different form. They've really played with wh- how it does what it does. Mm. And I think that so they can squeeze in some interesting tropes there, which, I mean, I always appreciate a good 
Invasion of the Body Snatchers zombie-esque yeah. kind of well, flavour. This is the thing. It's not just um, kids' movies from the 1980s that they're, tr- that they're no. troping off. No, it gets – they really pull in some gross stuff. Yeah, there's at least – well, a couple of slasher movies and, and definitely John Carpenter. Oh, the there's thing. a particular episode and particular scenes where it's like, yeah, I see what you're doing here. Yeah. But, I mean, it's fun. That's what you're there for. Yeah, exactly. It's like a it's it's like an amusement park right in its own I was aspect. just thinking too, like, they're all – it's sort of one collection of the same family. Like, they're all related. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of brother-sister pairings, brother-brother pairings, couples, all that kind of thing. It's very, yeah – Millie Bobby, actually, yeah, it is actually hard to watch um, the guy playing Jim Hopper, David Harbour, after seeing him in um, Hellboy. Oh, yeah. Playing that character, which I think he did a good job. He did a good job in that film. Um, we've also got Millie Bobby Brown, who was in um, Godzilla, King of the yes. Monsters, uh, as Eleven. And she's a kind of a superhero. She's got mm. s- she's got telekinetic, at least telekinetic powers. Yes. And a few others that will be revealed as we go along. Yes. Uh, she does a great job. I think she does a good job of it. I think um, – I feel like her delivery of Eleven's kind of naivety, it's a very fine balance and I think she pulls it off without mm. it becoming annoying. Yeah. There's um, – and she does that great look where she sort of looks down and, yeah. and then the nose starts to bleed when the powers kick in. I think she – I mean, that character could have been so blah, but I think she does a really good job. Mm. Um there are t- at least two other layers of characters within this in age group terms. Mm. There's they're, they're older brothers and sisters. Yeah, the teens. The Who, teen teens. The yes. older teens, I guess. Who have now say. got jobs in the mall. Yes, or jobs at the paper. Or jobs at the paper. Um, particularly uh, Natalia Dyer playing Nancy Wheeler, who um, suffers so much. Mm. Out-and-out harassment at a newspaper where she works. There are some love... There's a few really lovely scenes that came from that, which I thought were unexpected and they didn't need to necessarily be included, but I thought they were a really nice addition and calling out a few things that they'd covered story-wise that I was like, I appreciate that you have included these scenes. Yeah. Um, Looking at you, Jake Boosie, who's, you know, he's just one of those... But he his, was his loving dad, playing that, though. <laughs> his dad's what, just the same kind of character actor. Yeah. <laughs> the worst. The worst, yeah. Um, um, and also uh, we've got um, another layer of characters who I can't talk about because I don't want to give that away. Oh, um, okay, we're not going to talk about that at all. No, I don't, yeah, I don't okay. think we should. No, it, let's, let's not. Uh, they bring in another element that's very, very 80s. Yes, I was going to say. And uh, I don't w- want to give that away because it's kind of a bit of a surprise. It's a bingo, isn't it? It's like you could yeah. have a Stranger Things bingo of all these different tropes and when and how they come <laughs> up and then, you know. Not a drinking game because we're all too young for that. Um <laughs> Actually, yeah. a character I thought was really good was the guy playing Billy, another one of the oh, brothers. Oh, yeah. He's Australian, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, Darker Montgomery. Yeah. That's from memory. Is that right? Yes. I think that's right. Uh, I think he was have... in Power Rangers also. But he plays Max's older brother. So Max is another one of the kids. She was a new addition in season two. Um, and I won't go into too much what he's up to this no. season. But he's got he's got his own stuff to do. So... I think that's the thing is there's a couple of different parallel storylines, but they do a good job of keeping them all straight. Oh, um, there's one one um, 80s trope that I do love, and I will mention it. There, there's some uh, 
let's say there's some Arnold Schwarzenegger style <laughs> action that goes yeah. on in this one. And like the Van Damme era yeah. stuff. Hilarious. Yeah. Crack me up. Even though it's not really the, the nicest things that happen, but yeah. You know. Oh, and another person I, I, I wanted to talk about is uh, Maya, Maya Hawke. I was just about to bring her up, yeah. Daughter of Ethan and Uma Thurman. Yeah. Which you can see there's a few scenes where her voice is very a lot like Uma Thurman's and kind of some of her mannerisms are very similar. Yeah. Um, I just thought, yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. I think she did a really nice job. She plays Robin, who works with um, Steve, my favourite, at Scoops Ahoy in the Mall. Oh, you like Steve. I love Steve. He's really gone on a character journey. He was a tool in season one. I'm, I'm not going to defend his behaviour. No. But he does go on a journey. Yeah. Um. <laughs> he even has to resolve his um, issues with winning fights in this in this exactly. season too. Do you think this season was more punch up violence than? Yes, that's what I was thinking about that. Not said with relish, but the fact is that they're playing to a, p- a specific eighties trope. Yes, um, they're, they're more pulling off the idea of Karate Kid. I feel, and it's shifted up a level too. I think because everyone's slightly older. Yeah, they've gone away from that kids battling demons kind of thing, and now it's this. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's shifted. I was thinking in a couple of the scenes in one of the later episodes, um, there was definitely a lot more action type stuff. Another actress I wanted to call out was um, um, Priya Ferguson playing Erica Sinclair, who's Lucas's younger sister. Oh, yeah. And suddenly she becomes this really important character. Yeah, I think because she was in season two and a lot of people liked her. Yeah. So I reckon they've pulled her in as a fan favourite. But it works well. She's like 10 years old and she has got attitude to burn. She was so annoying at the start, (laughs) but then she grows on you quite a bit. That's what I found anyway. Yeah. This show is being uh, is created by the Duffer Brothers, mm. <laughs> and um, I think they've done a really good job on maintaining this. Mm. Now, I've I've seen the whole series, eight episodes. Yes, uh, and you're short thirty minutes. I am like right up against it. <laughs> yeah, um, what happens in that thirty minutes? I know. I was going to say <laughs> I can tell, which is why I've been saving it for the right time to finish off. But I pretty much binged a lot of it in one sitting. Yeah, we did a couple of sittings and yeah. and felt didn't didn't feel too taxed by that. No, look, I, I had my doubts. Uh, I love season one. Into season two, I'm sort of gotten a little bit wibbly wobbly yeah. over continuing with it. Then I watched this season, and in spite of my myself, um, I got pulled into the whole concept and the the relationships between the the various people, yeah. and actually quite found it quite fascinating. I think it does one of those great things where the characters aren't all probably as fully fleshed out as they would be if it was a smaller ensemble cast. Yeah. But you're really with them. You really have a sense of who they are. You're really with them on their journey. Like, I love that Nancy kicks ass. Like, she started kicking ass in season two and she continues to do so in season three. Um, and she's in, she's, um, she is, they, they joke about her being Nancy Drew, girl reporter, girl yeah. detective. But she, but she actually she is. She kicks butt. She's great. But intellectually kicks butt. Yeah, exactly. Is that what we mean? Yeah, well, both. Yeah, both. I mean, she's definitely, uh, she's a keen shot as well. But I think, and that you do, they do delve enough into different relationships. It's not just all about the action. So for me, I mean, Stranger Things is right up my street in that yeah. I, I sort of was describing it to someone like, for me, it's like even bad chocolate is good chocolate. So Stranger Things is like <laughs> always going to appeal to me. But I really like what they've done with the season. It is a whole new angle. Yeah. It's a whole new range of, tro- of tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all ones I'm happy to buy into. There are some 
absolutely gobstopping special effects in this mm. one. Um, yeah. And, you know, let's just, we were talking, I mentioned John Carpenter before and I'm not wrong. <laughs> There's some, yeah. And, and I'm thinking, well, this is, uh, it's just as well they're showing this on um, a streaming service where you can choose to watch it because yeah. the rating might be a bit high. For I reckon it would have gone up a couple of notches since season two. Yeah, yeah so. I reckon so. Um, there's so many tropes in it that you can you can just look at close encounters, Back to the Future. Mm. Uh, it, it's actually it is actually a never ending story. The way that they have managed to Pull pastiche in. it all together, but make it work. But make it work. Now that's actually hard to do. I reckon. Yeah. Um, there's some good uh, science fictional details in this with code breaking and mm. uh, magnetism, yep. and yep. and I appreciated all of that. Uh, Strange rat behaviour. Mm. Um, uh, what else? We mentioned the, the uh, Starcourt Mall, the swimming pool. Uh, there's one. Oh, the hospital. Yes. Y- yeah. Oh, that's, yes, the setting for some more good stuff. Yeah, all of those things running in there. Their music lands really well in this one. Yeah. Some standout moments. I don't, and I, they don't lean too much on pop needle drops either. No. And I think that that's... For the best. I will say I didn't think there was as much of the good score as I remember from season one and two. The There's original score. The kind of synthy score, but... Oh, I, I paid attention to it this time, um, and it is very John Carpenter-ish. Um, and what they're actually doing this time around, they're really editing it and pacing it like 80s films and TV. Yeah. Um, there are some moments there. In fact, I'm, I swear I heard a riff of Back to the Future music. You did. I did? Yeah, yeah. because I have CC closed captions on ah. and it said <laughs> Alan Silvestri back to, back to the future, future theme music plays yeah yeah <laughs> I'm not surprised um, so I actually think they did a great job with this um, I, I would not uh, say it's decreased in quality which can happen in a third season yep I think they've actually managed to nail what they were trying to do I think it's better than season two yeah it's uh, I was thinking about is it better than season one well it can't be because it builds upon that. Yeah, and season one was such an unexpected delight. It's like Guardians of the Galaxy. There are some there are some interesting new characters who I thought work really well, mm. uh, and not all of them are on the um, the good guys side. Yes, agreed. And, and we see more of characters who are so were so token, but I don't know. You just get a little more of them this season, and they're, they're in some great scenes that that you. Re- I don't want to say, but. Um, Having seen through to the end, and of course there is an after credits scene for the uh, final oh, episode, so right. stick around for that. Good to know. I would say, I actually feel feel like they actually didn't need to add in the after credits scene. I would have preferred that they kept things a little bit more ambiguous. Mm. Um, obviously, they, 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 the Duffer brothers say that they're halfway through. Right. Stranger things. Okay. Oh, okay. I actually think they could have landed it on this one and said, that's it, we're done. Halfway through. So they think they're going to do three more. Oh, they've got their hopes. <laughs> that seems like too many to me. Yeah. I think they've only, and I love it, but I reckon they've only got one more in them. Yeah, that's what I, I feel, unless they change things up in, in a, a big way. But they could do that, you know. They could. They Who could. knows? All right. Well, that's it. I, I think we've waxed lyrical yes. about that. Stranger Things, available on Netflix Season 3. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't watched any of it before, I would say it would, you'd be best to go back and start at the beginning. Of course. You but there are only eight episodes each. Yeah, exactly. So you could probably whip through them in a couple of days. <laughs> and, of course, it being the 80s gives us a perfect reason to do our Bowie of the Week. Woo-hoo. 
and in this case it's going to be Peter Gabriel's um, cover of David Bowie's Heroes, which does apply a lot to um, what the characters are doing. But, you know, I mean, it's just like a bunch of kids trying to just deal with extraordinary events. Mm. Reminds me a little bit of Super 8. I think it's far better than Super 8. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah, well, I mean, it's that classic It thing, and It is like my jam, so... I actually did... There's a, there is a, a clown who is appears, there? yeah, yeah, in one sequence at the fun fair. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and I also think they did... I keep coming back to this. Uh, um, some surreal sequences really quite well in this. Yeah, era. yeah, hmm. agreed. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> and so here we go, Peter Gabriel with... Heroes. Hi, I'm Andrea Thompson, and I played Talia Winters, resident commercial telepath on Babylon 5. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R, and I know what you're thinking. Yeah, what a beautiful cover. Yeah. Of Heroes, Peter Gabriel doing that one there. It's a, a really um, tricky song to cover that because, mm. oh, I mean, it's apart from the fact that it's so well known and iconic. Um, there's things about it that um, you have to sort of get the emotion into the into some of the the, the tone that comes out through it. Mm. I'm not explaining that very well at all, but you know, I mean, Blondie did a great one. Oh, really? Yeah, Deborah Harry did a great one. Oh. That. Okay, so uh, we <laughs> have swung into another realm here. Oh, I did want to mention that. Um, uh, the Soska sisters, the, Jen and Sylvia Soska, their trailer for the remake of David Cronenberg's Rabbit has dropped in all of its shivers and gory. So pop over to YouTube or Vimeo and, and, and check out their Rabbit remake. It looks great. Well, they, they do good stuff. They do their horror. Yeah. Now, what we do in the shadows, the television series based on the movie has started on the FX channel and also BBC Comedy 2 and a fair few other ones. Um, So just keep an eye out for that when you're wandering around the traps. It (laughs) looks hilarious. I saw a uh, a clip with um, uh, vampire, it was a vampire, a celebrity vampire reunion. Oh, (laughs) love it. And the actors that they pulled in there from other vampire movies was Absolutely I saw a couple stuffing. of the names and I was like, that's very that well done. so cool. Very clever. Mm. All right, now, Spider-Man. Yes, Far From Home. Far From Home. It's time. So, yeah, I mean, we're still recovering from Endgame and yet yep. Marvel has dropped us with another film, which we knew has been coming for a long time. So it's the follow-up to Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm. It is supposed to be the uh, the end of Phase 3 yes. for Marvel. So basically the end story for... 10 years. Uh, we will possibly touch upon some Avengers Infinity War and Endgame spoilers in this. It's time. Yeah. Um, but we'll try not to spoil Spider-Man Far From Home too much. Yes, I think that's quite important. So mm. we won't spoil that, but Endgame-wise, I think we're sort of fair game yeah. now. So. so if you haven't seen it by now, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to talk to some points in this. Uh, it's pretty much the same creative team mm. as the first um, of these Spider-Man films. Hang on, which one is this in terms of, okay, there's Sam Raimi's three, then there's the Andrew two. Garfield two. Two. So then there's the first of these ones. So seven. Well, there's the, um, if we're counting uh, Into the Spider-Verse as a Spider-Man film. Oh, yeah, we could do that. Um, Eight. If we're doing cross, you know, studios, yeah, then, yeah. yeah, we've also got um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yep. 
So it's a Sony Columbia Marvel Studios co-production, which they've been sort of they can do this now since they uh, sorted it all out about the time of Civil War. Yes, so not, that's not not the Civil War. <laughs> that's why we've War. got Spider-Man back in the under the MCU banner. Yeah, in the Avengers and so forth. That's true. <laughs> so it's directed by John Watts, who did um, the horror movie Clown, the thriller Cop Car. Um, before that, music videos, commercials, some short films, and it's done some television work as well. The writers, same writing team, uh, Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, who both, uh, well, they're a writing team, both did uh, American Dad, Community. Oh. Uh, Chris McKenna was brought in as a joke writer for The Winter Soldier because it needed some yucks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lego Batman, both worked on Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and Ant-Man and the Wasp, okay. which I think is... Um, a good one because that sets the tone for this movie. Mm, mm. Um, so, you know, they, 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 they know what they're doing. Sure. And, of course, homage to Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, the creator, co-creators of Spider-Man back yes. in the day. Um, now, if there was ever a time for me to be burnt out watching superhero movies, I suppose it would be now. <laughs> um, I'm pretty damn tired of the lamer DC movies and some of the dud, not-a-proper MCU movies. And I'm looking at you, some X-Men movies and, and Venom and the last horrible mm. Fantastic Four film. Oh, yeah, we just forget those exist. Mm. But I think the genre is so well bedded in now that the line stretches out to the crack of doom. Apologies to Victor Von Doom there. I could no more grow weary of cape movies now as a genre than I could of science fiction, fantasy, histor- historical movies or, or anything, any other general category. Mm. Though for personal reasons, it's likely to be simply impossible for any movie to ever be as entirely epic as the Infinity War Endgame cycle Mm. um, or to grow even a larger sort of um, expression, uh, the first three phases of the MCU all put together. This is not the fault of any new movies to come up. Mm. Uh, And, of course, I could imagine some team-ups and characters in future that would capture my interest to a pretty high degree. You know, Captain Marvel and Miss Marvel in the yeah. same movie. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, you know, but we go, don't need to go into that. And good th- Because good thing, Spider-Man is not... Um, Far From Home is not trying to be an epic. No, and I think they really c- cemented that with Homecoming and they were like, we are small fry mm-hmm. in a good way. we really friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Yeah. And, I mean, it really had a very strong layer of John Hughes over the top. It's meant to be a high school film about a high school superhero, at least Homecoming was. Yeah. And so I think they really try to – I think they do something quite interesting. And some of this is in the trailer where Peter Parker's struggling with the fact that after everything that has happened, he can't necessarily just be – Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man. No. It's quite specifically designed to serve as um, an extended end credit sequence for Endgame, I feel. Yeah. You can tell it's very closely linked with the events of that film. You've had had your main exercise and now you're sort of warming down, you know, stretching. But it is its own thing. It is. Very much. I think it's got its own style and... And I think while it is very clearly drawing from the events that have happened in the in Endgame, um, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly doing the Spider-Man thing. And, and it reframes Peter Parker's future. It for does, the MCU. yeah. Um, basically, the story is Spider-Man's on a school trip to Europe mm-hmm. with some 
uh, with his uh, restored class. Yes. Um, uh, the spoilers of this is that, you know, half of um, all life in the galaxy was dusted by Thanos. I feel, so they, relieved. I feel so relieved to be able to say that. I know. <laughs> I feel I loved how they handled the little bit of exposition that they had to handle at the start of this film. Mm. I think they did that really well because I had questions where yep. I, I was like, the five-year gap, how does that all work? Because of in, in Endgame, uh, after five years, the people are undusted. Yes. They call that the blip. But where they return to where they were yeah. when they were dusted. Oh, look, we spent hours talking about that afterwards, after uh, Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah. Th- trying to work out what would have happened, and it's got to have an impact. And, and what, like, sort of stage the people who were blipped you know, ageing and so forth. And I think it does a really lovely job of handling all those questions in a very blasé way and then just moving on with the story. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to explain too much about it. No. I would like to see that explored more. I guess maybe Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. will be the place to do that. I think they only gave you as much as you needed for (laughs) this film. And I think that was smart. I don't want to dig into that whole metaphysical discussion right now. I just want to watch Spider-Man swinging around Europe. Spider-Man and a new piece on the superhero chessboard, mm-hmm. a character called Mysterio. Yes, well, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake, yes. Uh, and both Spider-Man and Mysterio will be chess mastered by that master player, mm. Nick F- Nicholas J. Fury. So you could call this movie what I did on my school trip to Europe. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, our players, once again, Tom Holland. <gasps> um, he is struggling to come to terms with what it means to be the inheritor in many respects of Tony Stark's legacy. Mm. Nobody can fill those iron boots. We know that. No. Uh, but, you know, and Spider-Man's going to have difficulty if he even tries. Yeah. Uh, but but where he um, wanted to be more adult and more responsible in the earlier parts of his uh, MCU career, Spider-Man that is, now he's kind of struggling with, I just want to be a kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, there's problems. I... I think Tom Holland is my Spider-Man. I think he's definitely my yeah. my favourite. And I think they've done so much great work building his character up that mm. he's just a delight to watch a whole film's worth of. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury is wonderful again, mm. uh, riffing a, a little a, bit. Bit of a hard-ass, this, this film. Um, yes, he is, but he's, I mean, <laughs> he is not. He is not Tony he's, Stark. He's been described as that before, I'm sure. But yeah. you're right, and I need to remember that he he's got a very different role here. And, and Samuel L. Jackson's given the character some echoes of his problems that he had with Captain Marvel in this. Yeah, which is like ugh, 1990s to 2019. So mm. it's a long time. Yeah, between that, but it still it still rolls through. And this is one of the, the key things about the MCU. The Characters who are not up front all the time, who are often smaller characters or medium characters, often end up carrying the continuity for these stories through. Um, John Favreau was Happy Hogan. Happy is a good example, yeah. Mm. And I mean, John Favreau's been doing great with that uh, chef show on Netflix. Did you watch that? I've been watching it. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's so good, isn't it? I'm not. I couldn't. I'm not qualified to cook even a a stale beignet, but. (laughs) 
yes, the first go round was not. It's yeah, so it's the chef show. John Favreau has that on Netflix right now. We've talked about it on the show before, but it's a wonderful little show, and there's a bit of M- Marvel MCU players that come into that show as, as cameos. So Favreau being a um, a really notable director now of all sorts of films, apart from Iron Man one and two, mm, you know, mm. kicking off the MCU really. And he talks a little bit. Like, just offhand about, you know, his early experience as a director, being on set with certain things. And mm. it's largely stemming from the film Chef, which he directed and starred yeah. in, of course. So, And, and here he is playing uh, Tony Stark's chief of security, Happy Hogan. Mm-hmm. Um, no longer chief for Tony Stark, but chief of um, Stark Industries. Industries. Yeah. Or, uh, but not. But we we get the implication that Pepper Potts is, um, is, still, is still CEO running the show. Yeah, yeah. as yeah. she would be. She's an inheritor. Yes. When yes. you think about it, did you? So, uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle because Sebastian Stan. Did you see called her out for not knowing who he was, even though they <laughs> starred in several <laughs> films together? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, um, what can I say? It's a goop. Gosh. <laughs> Come on, Gwyneth. So anyway, um, kudos to John Favreau, who's done, who does a really good job in this, and he knows exactly how to play it. The tone is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've also got um, the other actors in here, like Zendaya playing uh, MJ. Yeah. Um, Kobe Smulders reprising the role of Maria Hill. Mm. Um, Marissa Tomei to- to- playing May Parker. Um, and Jake. Now, I only know him from Zodiac and Source Code. Okay. Um, Not Donnie and Donnie Darko. And Donnie That's Darko. Strong. That's yeah. a long, long time ago, though. And Brokeback Mountain, of course. Yes. So he he actually manages to land the role of Mysterio where I would expect it to be in this. He does a really great job. Yeah. Now he actually functions more of an uncle character for yes. um, Peter Parker. Did you see him in Prince of Persia? Oh yes, yes. Yeah, I was going to say just it reminded me that he was in that because I prefer yeah. to forget that film just because Mysterio's outfit. Yeah. Just reminded me of. Yeah. yeah. And there's there's, there's um, some other characters in here uh, uh, who are um, elementals. These are these are villains in the in in the film, and I thought the special effects, the CGI on those was top notch. Very cool. Some great water effects, which yeah. is always traditionally hard to do in, in, a, in a special effects terms. Some good action sequences too, like good web slinging, some oh. clever use of of webbing. Mm-hmm. And when I saw them do those water effects, I'm thinking, now you're just showing off because <laughs> that was really cool. Um, we've also got um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the actor who was playing uh, Ned. Um, yes. Uh, Spidey's uh, best friend. friend, best friend at school, mm. and he's great too. They they all they all push this push themselves into exactly the positions that work and go a bit beyond that. I yeah, thought. and there's a lot of good laughs as well. Like I think, yep, and but they're not trying too hard. I think that's what's always so great is they're just natural laughs. There is a character in this film. Um, who I know from the comic books, mm. uh, but I won't tell you. But I just there is a, there is a character in there who's um, mm. uh, somebody who's had more more of a role to play in the Marvel comic book universe. It's like they're putting they're planting it in there. Okay, it cool. could be a good reason for that. So. Interesting. And I personally liked how 
I think it really shows that the movie can stand on its feet because it's taken itself out of Peter Parker's domain, which is the high school. Yeah. And we hop around Europe on this school trip. So they go to Prague. They go to London. They start in Italy. I can't remember what city in Italy, somewhere. Venice. Um, oh, and then, yeah. So they... <laughs> the canals. They hop hint. about. <laughs> uh, that's right, yeah. There's some great lines that come from that too. Um, and I think it works really well. Let's let you know where we are at the moment. You're listening to Zero G on Triple R FM. We want it. We need it. Must have the precious. <gasps> yeah. I, I hope we didn't confuse you with Megan doing that. <laughs> I like, oh, recognise myself. Um, I think that uh, the, one, the one thing that really made me sad watching this movie was, you know, them talking a lot about Tony Stark and the Avengers legacy and the powers vacuum left in the wake of Endgame. Um you know that that moved me yeah. a lot, and I'm thinking, oh. <laughs> but then they did some some really cute stuff about that 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 kind of didn't take the sting out of it, but it made me th- reconsider it and think, yeah, <laughs> okay, I understand what they had to do and yeah. where they're gone. So I thought that was very good, especially that they had some very Avengers related tactics in yes. in one of the scenes, uh, and I thought, oh, I see, they're all making it's an homage to that. Yeah, and it's yeah. Spidey really picking up the uh, the fallen's um, sort of weapons and iconography. Ah, oh. oh, yes, uh, I thought that the light touch that they had in the jokes worked well. There's a a bit yeah. where um, some characters are interrupting some exposition that normally would be sacred. And, yeah, and it's like uh, Ant Man, you know, sort of Lewis interrupting that sort of thing. Yeah, that worked extremely well. Um, I, I I I thought that Spidey Far From Home was quite fun. It was cheekily meta. Uh, highly reverential mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and largely predictable for anyone marinated in the comics. Yeah. <laughs> but they did a, a nice burn on the era of fake news. Yes. As well. And, and by that I mean lies uttered and actual facts ignored and suppressed by the Trump administration. <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> just so you wanted to know what I was talking about, not what Trump calls fake news. No, yeah. exactly. And, of course, we won't say what they are, but you stick around... After the credits, there is a mid-credits scene mm-hmm. and then stay till the very end end for a very end credit scene. Yeah. So there's two. On the zero-G rating of yeah, nah, maybe, I, for me, it gets a, a friendly neighbourhood, yeah. Yeah, same for me. I I mean, I like I said, I think Spider-Man is my favourite superhero mm. character and I think Tom Holland is does a great job and it was fun. Yeah. Mm, mm. Pleasant pleasant watching. It doesn't have to be the thwipping boy for uh, any of the other movies. It stands upon its own two spandex-booted feet. It does, absolutely. Mm. All right, now we're going off for Joe Brunatic's um, Astral Glamour next, and we will go out with a track from Spider-Man Homecoming by uh, Michael Giacchino, and this is um, just a bit of a... A sweet, um, and we also have a giveaway as our own end credit sequence for today. So we will um, do this giveaway during the end track for Zero G today, and I will tell you about it. First off, <laughs> in a moment, you will need to call the number nine three eight eight one zero two seven and be a subscriber to Triple R, a current subscriber. Now, the giveaway is one double pass to Solaris at Malthouse Theatre. It's on Saturday, July 13th at 1.30pm at the Malthouse at 113 Sturt Street, South Bank. 
and uh, we will leave your names at the box office for this. So it's one double pass to Solaris. And this is actually highly relevant to Zero G. In a world premiere production, Matthew Lutton and David Grieg bring Stanislaw Lem's classic thriller Solaris to life on stage, which is You know, mind-boggling. Very cool. On the other side of the galaxy, above an uninhabitable world, a crew of scientists are lost, haunted by the dark horrors of their past. (laughs) This epic sci-fi love story stars Keegan Joyce and Liana Wall's men and features Hugo Weaving. Solaris runs from June the 28th to July the 21st at Malthouse Theatre. Bookings via malthousetheatre.com.au. So only subscribers with a paid annual subscription are eligible for the giveaways. Now we swing out with Spider-Man. Astral Glamour comes up next. And you need to call 9388-1027. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.